Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Psychiatric chief complaints comprise about 6 or 7% of all ED visits, with the numbers of psych patients we see increasing every year. The ED serves as both the lifeline and the gateway to psychiatric care for millions of patients suffering from acute behavioral or psychiatric emergencies. As ED docs, besides assessing the risk of suicide and homicide, one of the most important jobs we have is to determine whether the patient's psychiatric or behavioral emergency is the result of an organic disease process, as opposed to a psychological one. Now, there is no standard process for this. On the one hand, these psych patients are high-risk medical patients. Psychiatric patients not only have a higher incidence of chronic medical conditions, but they're at greater risk of injury, including serious head injury, more than the general population. The rate of missed medical diagnoses in the ED ranges from 8 to 48%, depending on which study you read, with the highest misdiagnosis rate among first presentations. We need to be able to identify these acute medical emergencies. And the admitting psychiatric team certainly shouldn't be burdened with a missed acute medical emergency. On the other hand, psych patients can be a burden on the ED, with the average length of stay in the ED ranging from 15 to 30 hours, depending on whether or not they require medical clearance and whether or not they're admitted. Now, lack of agreement between the ED and the psychiatry department can lead to the adoption of arbitrary exclusion criteria, which delay admission even further. And what about the cost? Well, in one study, the total costs were $17,240 U.S. dollars per patient requiring medical screening. So knowing that these patients are at high risk for acute medical problems that need to be dealt with before their disposition, while at the same time wanting to move them through the system efficiently, poses some challenges. An appropriate and accurate medical clearance process is imperative for decreasing length of stay in the ED and cost, as well as identifying medical issues that may be causing or exacerbating the patient's presentation. So with the main objective in mind of picking up and appropriately managing organic disease while improving flow, decreasing cost, and maintaining good relationships with our psychiatric colleagues, it's my pleasure to introduce our three guest experts on this controversial topic. New to EM cases, we have with us Dr. Ian Daw, the Program Chief and Medical Director of the Mental Health Program at Trillium Hospital, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Toronto, and the Mental Health and Addictions Physician Lead for the Toronto Central East Lynn. Welcome to EM Cases, Dr. Daw. Thank you very much. All right, and it's been way too long since we last had one of our staple EM guest experts, Dr. Brian Steinhardt on EM cases, an emergency physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, where they see huge volumes of psychiatric and toxicologic patients, and an associate professor at the University of Toronto. Dr. Steinhardt gave us oodles of pearls on one of my all-time favorite episodes, Low Back Pain Disasters, and also one of my favorite best case ever podcasts, Thinking Outside the Abdominal Box. I think this podcast marks the fifth appearance on EM cases for Dr. Steinhardt, It's always a pleasure to have you back on EM Cases. Thank you, Anton. And may I say the coffee is only getting better and better. (laughs) All right. And last but certainly not least, I'm thrilled to welcome back to EM Cases one of my personal mentors, 
The Ontario government's go-to consultant on just about anything and everything emergency medicine, chief of the ED at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, full professor at the University of Toronto, and the Toronto Central Lynn lead and Ontario expert lead for EM, Dr. Howard Ovens. So glad to see you back on EM Cases, Howard. Thanks, Anton. It's a real pleasure to be here, especially today with old friends Brian and Ian talking about one of my favorite topics. Awesome. So medical clearance of psychiatric patients. Let's start with the case. So a 44-year-old man from home with a known history of schizophrenia is brought in by his sister. She reports that he's deteriorated over the last two weeks, wandering around the house, refusing to engage in any conversation or take his clozapine. He's also been urinating on the floor. There's no recent history of infection, fall, or head injury. On exam, he's unkempt with normal vital signs, but refuses to engage in conversation, and it's very difficult to perform a physical exam. He's pretty uncooperative. Nonetheless, his gait is normal as he paces back and forth in the room. There aren't any obvious signs of injury or track marks, and his pupils appear large. So let's start off our conversation with sorting out exactly what medical clearance means. You know, it's a pretty vague term, and I'm personally distinctly unclear of what the definition is. There seems to be a lack of consensus between psychiatrists and eMERGE docs about what medical clearance should really entail. So, Dr. Evans, let's start with you. How should we define medical clearance so that we're all sort of on the same page? Well, medical clearance isn't a term to represent the absence of medical issues, but rather the absence of any immediate medical instability or a medical condition causing or contributing to the behavioral presentation we're seeing. Also, the term clearance implies too much certainty for any medical situation. It's not possible to screen and diagnose all potential concurrent medical issues in the ED. Therefore, some authors have preferred the term evaluation for medical stability or a focused medical assessment. I'm very comfortable myself with medical stability. I think that's really what we're looking for is some type of acute care lens on what's happening to this person right now, not in any way guarantee that this person is never going to have any medical problems whatsoever. So I'll take it a step further. I have trouble with the opening statement medical clearance, which we talked about, but psychiatric patient. So I hear this time and time again, and my concern is we are already labeling this presentation as psychiatric, i.e. functional, i.e. we need the psychiatrist. So it seems to be a paradox that we're trying to find a medical cause for this patient who's already been labeled as psychiatric. So My sense is if we really want to turn this around and and refine what we're doing, it's the medical assessment of the altered patient. So we keep it open because otherwise we're biased in many ways by that statement. Now that we have an idea of what medical clearance means, or rather, let's call it medical assessment, what approach in general do you have for these patients? You had mentioned before how we tend to be biased. How could you kind of just outline for our listeners how you approach these patients in general? 
Well, in general, it's the same as any other patient complaint. If I'm able to, I want to get a complete history and physical. As with any other condition, it's history, 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 uh, which may not be forthcoming in, in this cohort of patients. And so one relies on support groups, social community workers who know the patient, family who've seen any deterioration, glean this information from often many sources to get a satisfactory history. Collateral history is key. Collateral history. And so very important. And and I like to take the handover if it is police or ambulance or social worker who's who's dropping the patient off and then leaving. I want to get firsthand from these people what their impressions are, what they've seen in the field, at the home scene, invaluable information, as always. Physical exam, we're, I think we're going to get into details uh, as to how vital vital signs are, and we're going to look for uh, instability in the vital signs and, and then some particular pearls about physical examination. But in general, one, one has to perform a good physical examination. As I alluded to with this cohort, it may not be possible on presentation. Uh, the patient may be very aggressive, very violent, very uncooperative, and I think we'll get into in the discussion how we could defuse this situation right at the door, right at the emergency department door it starts so that we can, if possible, get the best history and best physical exam possible. I think part of what I hear is the tension between not wanting to duplicate things in a well-known patient. They may be just well-known to the institution and have a clear medical record. They may often be very well-known personally to the staff versus keeping an open mind. And we all have our anecdotes and stories uh, that we tell over uh, coffee or beer about the frequent flyer who uh, showed up on the 12th time with something very different. And of course, underlying all of that is a desire of, for us to be efficient and a desire for the people often uh, receiving the patient from us at handover to know that we've really done our best not to miss anything. So that really comes to the issue of what's the minimum assessment of a patient. And I think that's a very important point. And my approach and the one that I've taught for many years in our department is that history and physical exam, as we've said, remain the mainstay of evaluation. But what parts of history and what parts of physical exam? I think a full set of vital signs, as long as the patient allows you to do it, should be done on every single eMERGE patient, including every psychiatric patient. Uh, history must include the history of mental illness, their, of course, recent presenting history, their drugs, their use of substances, the content of their mood and thoughts, delusions, hallucinations. And usually when you get to the physical exam, you've already been informed by the vital signs and the history you've taken. And sometimes all you need to do is uh, complete a very brief physical exam and as you pointed out when you presented this case, Anton, a lot of physical exam information such as mental status and a great deal of neurological function is available by careful inspection as well as looking at things like the patient's dress, signs of trauma. And these things have to be done very carefully and it's therefore not necessary if you've got a good set of information leading to this point 
to just take out your stethoscope and listen to the heart for a murmur or feel their belly, that's not much value added. But the things I've described, I think, are a minimum part of the assessment in every patient who lets you do it. So Dr. Evans, you nicely outlined the minimal data set, so to speak, of what you need to get from the patient. Dr. Steinhardt, what kind of key pearls and tricks do you have for us to get the best you can out of the history and the physical? Well, again, uh, you want to throw a broad net and try and capture as many sources as you can. What we're looking for, again, in differentiating an organic cause for this presentation versus, I'll call it a functional, quote, psychiatric cause, is um, prior history, uh, psychiatry, illnesses, schizophrenia, bipolar disease, etc., suicidality even has a hereditary component. And we all know, I think, of families where this gene is running rampant. If you get that history, that supports, of course, the psychiatric. Advanced age, usually a presentation of uh, psychiatric illness surfaces in the younger age group, shall we say, from the teens on through to the 40s. And I, I hate to say this, but advanced age, i.e. greater than 40 in this case. Are you calling it, me old, Brian? Uh, I'm older than you, Anton, So as is everybody here. So, <laughs> But certainly in an older age group, any altered behavior presentation is more likely to be organic if they haven't had it already. You know, just talking about history, Brian, in a study that's um, probably uh, fresh in our minds, but an older study to the younger folks listening in, 1997 study by Olshacker and colleagues looked at 345 patients presenting to an emergency department with an apparent psychiatric complaint. And they found that a complete history was the most sensitive way of identifying common medical conditions with 94% sensitivity, with the physical and lab tests being much lower. An important corollary of that is, if you can't get a complete history, the risk of missing something just went way up, and you have to take that into account and take other strategies in order to uh, lower your risk of missing something. Yeah, so another way of putting that is, not getting a history may put the patient into a high-risk category automatically. Absolutely. With that in mind, other things that we want to try and glean is uh, the onset. So psychiatric illness is usually kind of grumbles along for possibly weeks to months before they present to the ER, whereas organicity typically is, you know, hours to a few days. So the the rapidity of the onset, I think, is paramount in differentiating the two etiologies. And then if they're complaining of headache, ooh, this is a bad thing. And, uh, you know, the red flags just kind of fire out in front of you that you better be chasing some uh, some organicity. And then I think, again, it's an older age group. Any any new medication that they may have started in the proximal to the presentation is open for uh, consideration. The, the seniors and the elderly are so sensitive to even like acetaminophen can set them off. This, I think, is also very, very noteworthy on history amongst many other factors. Two things I'd like to say in follow-up. The, the medication one is one that we really 
don't give enough attention to. And we recently had a very dramatic case in my department that one of my younger, smarter physicians armed with a smartphone recognized that a very disturbed individual in our department had a uh, unusual drug interaction between an antibiotic, a macrolide, and an SSRI. And none of us had actually heard of that, but he made the diagnosis and was later confirmed, like I say, by having an open mind, looking at the med list, asking what's new, and then whipping out his smartphone and doing a little Googling. He really came to a brilliant diagnosis. I think the psychosocial history is critical in many eMERGE presentations, often in other types of cases like chest pain that's really stumping you. You ask a little bit about how things are going at home or at work, and you go up a whole different and more fruitful line of inquiry. But in these patients, I always ask them where they live, who they live with, how they support themselves. Have they got any outstanding charges they're facing? Have they ever been in jail? Do they have any access to weapons? What substances do they regularly use? And where were they just before they came to the emergency department? And you get some pretty usually honest and revealing answers with those questions. So I I would, again, take this a step further that somatoform disorders, so chest pain, headache, fatigue, short of breath, belly pain, numbness that we see so often. So to get to the root cause of all this, is it's not just the psychiatric altered behavior presentation where there may be environmental and psychosocial factors precipitating it, but it's the somatoform disorder that we see a multitude of times in every emergency department that we throw billions of dollars working up with CT scans and MRIs and ultrasounds and everything else, where if we drilled a little bit more into what Howard said, what's going on at the home front, the somatoform etiology may be more prevalent on the ER assessment. A very, very challenging uh, set of diseases that we often come to by default after the end of a very lengthy, costly workup. The other uh, point I'd just like to add is when do you ask those questions? And I think it's very common that people go through extensive imaging, laboratory workup, sometimes multiple consultations before somebody who's actually had this thought earlier sits back and says out loud, by the way, what's going on in your life? And I think we should have the courage and open-mindedness to ask these questions much earlier. Okay, if you're complaining of chest pain, you should get a cardiogram before you start asking about how things are at work. But it should be part of routine questioning. And in those people in which it's not going to be fruitful, it really takes only a few seconds and you'll find out whether you're getting something worthwhile or not. And the other thing is you'll avoid a defensive reaction from the patient if you make it not only a routine, but make it sound like a routine. So I often will ask about smoking, alcohol, other substances, uh, previous surgery, and what's your current employment? Who do you live with? What's your marital status? How are things going at home and work? So it seems like a natural kind of question, not somehow an accusation or a change in approach. It would be great if we had all the time to do all of these things, but I can just hear the synapses firing in some of our listeners' brains going, I don't have the time for this. 
So I just want to get back to, we talked about the minimum data set, but I want to get back to what the really the key things are. Now, Dr. Steinhardt, Dr. Ovens, when you see a psychiatric patient, you've been doing this for long enough that you could probably just from the end of the bed recognize more easily if someone has an organic problem just by looking at them. But for our younger physicians, what are really the the really key things that you want to look for? So let me just uh, respond, Anton. We're all busy. We're all seeing sick people and potentially sick people. And you have to bring out what I call the emery cloth sometimes with these patients. You've got to be right on your toes because they are so challenging at times and you cannot miss a subdural empyema on these patients and call psychiatry. You just, you cannot miss that. There is zero tolerance for missing that kind of stuff in these patients. So I go in knowing that for the next 10 minutes of my life, I am going to dedicate it to this patient. It's just like I'm going in for an LP. I tell the nurses, don't bother me. I don't care if there's a code. You know, I'm with this patient. I can't come out. And to drive the point home, we know from medical school, but we ER docs always forget and psychiatrists always remember, you can't push these patients when it comes to an interview. You can't be rushed. You have to sit there. You ask them a question. You wait. You look at your wristwatch and you wait 30 seconds. You just sit there and the chances are the response will come out, but it may not come out like we're talking here, rapid fire, unless they're hypomanic, but you must wait. You must be patient. You must give them the time they deserve, even in a busy ER. That's just part of the patient load. It's part of your responsibilities. And there's no excuse to say you're too rushed and I missed a subdural empyema. I think that the real eloquent or elegant step here is knowing where to invest your time. That comes with experience. I just got our departmental uh, performance on patients per hour yesterday for the last quarter. I'm not the fastest guy in my group, but I'm in the upper quartile. And I know for a fact, Brian's not the slowest guy in his group by any means. And yet, I think he's right. When I go in and sit down with a psychiatric patient who's a bit challenging, establishing rapport, sitting down, showing that you're taking some time to listen to them, and then spending 30 seconds to show them that you're really going to wait for what they're going to answer can save you hours and hours and hours of wasted time later. The history is where the money is, and you've got to make an effort to do that, not just because it's in the patient's best interest. Ultimately, it's the most efficient way to get to the bottom of what's wrong with this patient. Absolutely. Now, Dr. Dahl, when we take a history and we do our physical exam, it's very important to get a good mental status examination, and sometimes it's very challenging. The kind of mental status exam that you might do as a psychiatrist will be more detailed than what we might do as an emergency physician. What can you suggest just as a quick screen for an emergency doctor to do for the mental status exam? I think what you're looking to rule out is some type of acute confusional state. 
So questions that can be delivered and answered very rapidly to screen those things is what we're starting to really hone in on. And that goes to the ability to talk in legible sentences, to delusional content, to an awareness of time, place, who they are, where they are, those types of things. It doesn't have to be too much more complicated than that. Because what we're really looking for, and so much of that comes from observation, so much of that comes from just having the conversation with them, that you can be really observing throughout that whole process to detail and then document uh, what's happening to that person at that particular time. If a patient is forthcoming, engages with you, answers your questions, gives coherent responses, for instance, the depressed patient, but one who really gives you a full accounting of all the things that are going on in their life and their experience in a logical progression, you're not going to ask that person to draw the hands of a clock. On the other hand, the person who's more difficult isn't speaking, is speaking off in tangents or showing some abnormal thought content. That person needs some more formal inquiry. And like other scoring systems we have, once you're familiar with the content of the scoring system, informally applying the same knowledge is probably just as good. But for our trainees and junior colleagues who are less familiar with applying these things, grabbing their smartphone and looking up a mini mental status exam and doing it in a more formal way is a great way to make sure they don't forget anything and that they get some experience in applying this type of inquiry in those situations that need it. Absolutely. I understand that there is a scale called the quick confusion scale, which was shown in in the Annals of Emergency Medicine to be as good as the mini mental status exam, which is a bit longer. And it's literally just four questions. What month is it? Repeat a phrase and remember it. You know, you could say John Brown, 42 Market Street, New York. About what time is it? And count backwards from 20 to 1, or say the months in reverse, and then repeat the memory phrase that you had before. So that would take all of about, I don't know, one minute. And apparently that's been shown to be as accurate as the full mini mental status exam. So with that in mind, the altered behavior patient is a huge spectrum. They could come in... uh, feeling unwell to altered level of consciousness and everywhere in between. Uh, and so what we use, I think, in mental in a mental status exam to look for red flags is uh, what is their orientation? Do they know where they are? Even, even I think, the, the sickest schizophrenic patient to bring out the typical psychiatric patient that we're evaluating knows that they're in the hospital. They know at least the month and the year, they may not get the date. In fact, half the time I have to look at my wristwatch to confirm what date it is of the month. Do they have good judgment and do they have good memory? And all of this can be gleaned in 30 seconds. And uh, these three red flags for organicity, if they don't have and demonstrate good judgment, orientation, and memory, for me, it's more likely organicity and less likely functional. But there is crossover because of the the huge spectrum of psychiatric disease that we can see. 
Are we ready to go on to lab tests or physical you, exam? You wanted to say more about physical exam. I haven't said anything about physical exam. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it got me started. All right, time for a review. Our main goal here is to screen all these patients who present with some kind of behavioral deviation for a nasty, acute medical problem and do it efficiently. You need to take the time to get a decent history and do a decent physical whenever possible. Because if you cut corners and just do a bunch of tests, you'll miss something bad. So what is the minimum stuff that you need to get out of the history and physical? The minimum data set should include full vital signs. You know, you don't want to miss that patient with a fever who actually has a subdural empyema that's causing his odd behavior. Next, a history of mental illness. Next, medications, and especially any recent medication change, because that's so common to cause delirium. Substance use, mood, thought content, and a brief mental status exam. Now, what are some of the historical clues to help differentiate organic versus psychiatric illness? You know, these patients often end up getting extensive, expensive workups that can be easily avoided by just asking a few simple questions and will save you a whole lot of headache downstream. So the questions that may help reveal an obvious cause for their altered behavior early on in your assessment, including the dreaded somatoform disorders, are the following. One, where do you live? Two, who do you live with? Three, how do you support yourself? Four, do you have any outstanding charges you're facing? Five, have you ever been in jail? Six, what substances do you use regularly? And seven, where were you just before you came to the ED? Now, a detailed, extensive mental status exam is not necessary in every patient with a behavioral problem. If you're junior, you might want to use the quick confusion scale. And if you've got a lot of experience seeing these kinds of patients, then just remember to glean the three elements of the mental status exam for all these patients, orientation, memory, and judgment. Now, all of this stuff seems pretty obvious, but I think it's just a matter of remembering that for every patient that presents with some kind of behavioral change, you really want to go through all these things so you don't miss anything. Now, the physical exam. So Dr. Steinhardt's chomping at the bit here to enlighten us about uh, his pearls and tricks of trade on the physical exam. So Dr. Steinhardt, let it rip. Let's hear your pearls and pitfalls, tricks of the trade when it comes to doing a physical exam on a psych patient? Uh, You've heard it said time and again, vital signs are vital, i.e. necessary for life. And if we can, we would want to get a set of vital signs. Initially, that includes pulse, blood pressure, respiratory rate, O2 sat if we can, temperature. And I'm going to be a little bit challenging here at bedside blood sugar. That's part of the vital signs. I've learned too many times that hypoglycemia can present in myriad of ways, including altered behavior. In fact, I'm embarrassed to say the best case I've ever had of catatonic schizophrenia, florid, 
brought in by the police, uh, standing, staring at a, a window uh, pane in a downtown area. And when the police drove by, they drove by half an hour later. This patient was still staring at the same kind of toys in the room. They picked him up, brought him to me. I was a student at a psychiatric standalone institute where I trained in Ottawa. And I just learned about catatonic schizophrenia. I thought this is fantastic. I heard it's a once in a lifetime presentation. Here I am like two days out of my catatonia session. And this patient has catatonic schizophrenia. And thankfully, the staff man was a little smarter than I and did a bedside glucose and found it to be extremely low. And we didn't even have supplemental glucose in the emergency department there and transferred them several blocks away to the general hospital. And I went to visit the patient afterwards and his, quote, catatonic schizophrenia had dramatically cleared. So I'm still hunting for that classic catatonic schizophrenic. So that and many, Glucose many... is the sixth vital sign. Exactly. I, I think it's mandatory. You're going to be fooled. You're going to be burnt. The brain does not do well without glucose. So that's paramount. If you can't get the vital signs, you know, if you could stand there and get the pulse and get a sense of the respirations, if the patient's aggressive and unforthcoming, uh, you could kind of make do in the interim, but that blood sugar, you can't wait for. And then are they moving everything you know, or is there some hemiparesis or hemiplegia going on? It's obvious at times. Are they able to phonate and carry on a good conversation? Is there fluctuating level of consciousness, not just a GCS of 14, but does it go down to 13, then up to 15? This is a harbinger of, of an organicity. It's pretty rare for a functional psychiatric schizophrenic patient in front of you to have altered levels of awareness. And it's usually bad and it stays bad or it's good and it stays good. It's unusual to fluctuate in that way. If you want to look at the eyes, is there nystagmus? Is there pupillary dilation, fixation? All these are more suggestive of an organic cause, if not a drug cause. If they're immunocompromised and regardless, you want to check for nuchal rigidity. And if they're not cooperative, I kind of, there's no scientific proof to this, but I have them fixate on something. I show them a loony, or if I'm really lucky and I got my allowance this week, a toonie, and I have them fixate. And if they could bend, when I drop it down in front of them to look at the floor, if they could look down, then I figure there's no real meningismus going on. I kind of insinuate that as if they don't, I've seen it, it works for me in the pediatric population. If they have meningitis, they're not looking down amongst many other obvious signs. The, the Steinhardt sign, we'll have to do a study on that one. And you know, I say stick out my tongue, the patient's tongue, pardon me. If there's a laceration in the tongue, you know, They've had a seizure. They're postictal. Uh, again, I, I don't know the science of to this sensitivity and specificity of this, but sure works for me. And the tens of thousands of patients I've seen with seizures, for sure, and they have tongue laceration. I've never seen a tongue laceration otherwise than a patient who's altered, who didn't have a seizure, and then goes on to have another seizure in front of me. And then, you know, if they're supine, and I'm looking at them, I look up their nose. I don't use a speculum because, and nor can I look at the fundi as I would like to. If they're altered, I'm not going or can't get that close to them for fear of my 
well-being. But you look up the nose, and you'd be surprised what you find up there. There's some powder up there. For the last few years, the streetwise people will grind up any pill to snort uh, so-called nasal insufflation to get a high on every kind of psychiatric drug you can think of. Bupropion is the go-to drug to get a high. The reason why bupropion is well-known is the uh, penitentiary services in Canada, God love them, at one point stopped smoking amongst prisoners because the guards were concerned for their their inhaling all the cigarette smoke. So in the wisdom of the Corrections Canada people, they gave bupropion to all the prisoners who all would otherwise smoke and they were getting agitated. So here's the bupropion. And when you're in prison, is I don't know firsthand, thank goodness, but you'll do anything to get high. And they started crushing the bupropion, snorting it, and they found it to be like a cocaine high before they went into their seizures. So I do look up the nostrils from afar and see what's going on there. And, and we're surprised again and again about what we see. Great, Pearl. And then I think if they have visual hallucinations, if they're freaking out about something in the room and and whatnot, that just smacks of organicity. I all see a myriad of schizophrenics who are altered and lost touch with reality. And they all talk about the thought broadcasting and, and, and the persecutory delusions that they have. But in my memory, I've never seen an altered patient with visual hallucinations being schizophrenic. They've all turned out to be organic. So that's a I think a really a telling sign if you if you see this in front of you, don't call your psychiatrist yet. Well, those are some great ones. So visual hallucinations, think organic. Take a look up the nostrils. That's one I've never even thought about doing. I'm sure there's all kinds of leftover powders you can see up there. The eyes, looking for nystagmus, looking for any any unusual movements. And of course, the sixth vital sign, the glucose. You're starting to get into the notion of documentation and how that information, all this amazing stuff that we're talking about here actually gets communicated. Because I think sometimes what we struggle with when you do large-scale audits of the transfer notes, you see very paucity of information, that there isn't a wealth of things being communicated there. And if we could get reliably those vital signs and glucose and some commentary about the things that we've talked about, that's an incredibly rich source of information that I think any consulting service would be happy with. So Howard referred to the stethoscope and, you know, in 2016, the stethoscope is being slammed as as the aardvark of, of medicine, that it's, it's just a passe kind of instrument that we should be doing, you know, ultrasounds of the heart at the bedside and how useless the stethoscope is. And we alluded early on as to how to defuse the patient who comes in shackled, agitated, tearing up your waiting room in your emergency department. And with that in mind, there's nothing more invaluable than a good nurse at the front door. A good nurse can defuse so many of these violent, aggressive patients and have them set up for you. But when you go to see the patient, and if the situation is still unsettled but ripe, there's nothing 
like pulling out a stethoscope and asking the patient, can I listen to your heart? And nine out of 10 times, you will see the patient just go that extra degree and just calm right down and say, yes, doctor, please. In fact, half the time they pull up their T-shirt and say, here, you know, please, doctor, yes, listen to my heart. There is still something magical still about using the stethoscope, laying on of the hand, and not a hand within a latex glove, I might add, but, you know, holding the shoulder, listening to the patient, or not even listening to the patient, but just the very act of doing that has this magical inference so often. In terms of de-escalation and establishing of rapport, we have a big advantage if we choose to use it. If we approach them and clearly identify and look like a physician and not only say that we're there to help them, but I've often pointed to the surroundings and said, I need your help. There's a lot of sick people here. Please keep your voice down. I need my security officers looking after some other things. If you could cooperate, it would help us a lot. That kind of approach, if they're in a state where they can listen and understand what you're saying, that kind of approach, even with very intoxicated patients, for instance, is really amazing how often it'll be successful. So that's a little bit about how to de-escalate the patient without having to go to major tranquilizers in order to help facilitate a good history and physical exam. And just to review again, Dr. Steinhardt's personal expert opinion physical exam pearls. Of course, vital signs are vital. Any abnormality in vital signs should be addressed and accounted for. Hypoglycemia can mimic any psychiatric illness from catatonic schizophrenia to severe depression and should be considered as the sixth vital sign. Remember A, B, C, D, E, F, G. The A, B, Cs, and don't ever forget glucose. Look for fluctuating level of awareness as it's rare in isolated psychiatric illness and often signifies delirium and an underlying toxin, metabolic abnormality, or CNS lesion. Don't forget to scrutinize the patient's eyes. Any abnormality in gaze, nystagmus, pupillary dilation, etc. may signify an organic pathology. And I love Dr. Steinhardt's few little tricks of the trade. First, to assess for nuchal rigidity from the end of the bed while the patient's standing, have them fixate on a coin, and then toss the coin at the floor at their feet. If they flex their neck through a full range of motion to look down at the coin, it makes it less likely that they have meningismus. The next Steinhardt trick of the trade was to ask the patient to protrude their tongue, because if you see a laceration, you really need to think about a post-ictal state as a cause for their altered behavior. And take a moment to look up the patient's nostrils. I mean, I'd never thought about doing this. You might be surprised to find cocaine or crushed bupropion or any number of toxins that the patient has insufflated. And lastly, visual hallucinations usually point to an organic illness. Generally speaking, auditory hallucinations are more indicative of a psychiatric illness, whereas visual hallucinations are more indicative of organic cause. Next, we're going to talk about the oh-so-controversial topic of what lab tests to do for psychiatric patients. Uh, yeah. So what we're about to talk about is quite controversial. 
We're going to be talking about lab tests for behavioral and psychiatric emergencies. First, for our schizophrenic patient who won't talk and you can't get a decent physical exam on, the question is, would you order lab tests or imaging of his brain? Let's start with that, and then we'll get into more generally when lab tests are indicated. In the circumstances that we've described, I would not do brain imaging. The reason is that this patient has a known history. There is an apparent explanation for his behavior and that he's been refusing his medication. And there is an absence of reason to suspect a central cause. There's no sign of trauma. There's no history of trauma. And there's no obvious focal neurological deficits in terms of gait and movement. So I think that's enough to presumptively exclude a central cause. And I would not order imaging in this case. And by every comment I made, you can deduce in what cases I would go for imaging. So so I would go a step further. Uh, he mentioned that there's a past history of psychiatric illness in this patient. So if it's a first presentation, and I know what the, all the guidelines say, but having said this earlier in the broadcast, the classic schizophrenic presentation, even de novo, so gradual decline in function, not going to school anymore, not attending meals, delusional, persecutory thought, thought broadcasting, and comes in in this regard with no other red flags on history and physical, should not get scanned. I've never seen in my 37 years of practice anyone with a classic presentation of schizophrenia have organicity or having heard about it, having missed one. There's big downsides to doing CT scans willy-nilly, shall we say, which we'll get into. And I would add then somewhat heresy, I, I know, but a de novo, straightforward, classic schizophrenic patient does not need CT scanning, will not have anything on it to contribute. And you're going to radiate the patient. Dr. Steinhardt's now going to describe a study that he's recently been involved in regarding the indication for doing a CT head in psychiatric patients. So for those patients in the three centers that we looked at, where there was really no indication, no red flags to do imaging, so very strict criteria to look retrospectively at these patients. We had 300 patients who had CT scans done on them, and we had a neurologist interpreting the results. And out of the 300-odd patients with CT scans, how many do you think had significant findings related to their presentation? Maybe one, right? So could you imagine the costs of CT scans? Again, I alluded to the fact that some of these patients, especially inner city, don't have any identification. They may very well have had two or three other CT scans for similar presentations in the last month, and you, you're not able to track it down. Well, docs are docs, and we're human beings together, you know, and sometimes we test because we can test, not because we have a thought process behind why we should be testing. The literature reflects uh, what we experience on the front lines that drives a lot of the over-investigation, which is the relationship issues between us and uh, consultants. Again, it's uh, analogous to other specialties, but with psychiatry, often there is both an anxiety about their own risk as well as a 
a little bit of lack of trust in what we've presented them with. And of course, if we have written a very brief note, most of which is illegible and really not explained what we've done, then that's going to make that anxiety and trust situation even worse. And then they're going to send the patient back or they might call the eMERGE or go looking for the attending physician if it all takes place in one location. And the physician's gone off shift and nobody wants to bother a doc who's no longer on duty. That's one of the unwritten rules in emergency medicine. And so rather than call your colleague, you're going to try and interpret what happened and that's a hassle for you. And you can't really explain why they didn't do a urine tox or a CT. So you end up doing it and then you're resentful that you had to do that. So the next time you resolve to do it in advance so that nobody else has a problem or some variation on this theme. And part of what gets taken up in all that is especially when you're dealing with trainees or often nurses on the receiving end at a psych floor or psych facility, they also don't have the sophisticated knowledge to differentiate important from less important. And they'll say, well, how can you medically clear the patient as blood pressure is 150 over 100? What do you mean that's that's normal? That's clearly not a normal blood pressure. Uh, you didn't examine him. You didn't take off his clothes, etc. And much of the literature on misses includes trivial misses, which in any screening population, there'll be irrelevant positives come up. So part of this is just fixing that relationship. Part of that is good documentation and developing a relationship between you and your consultants where if there are questions that you talk to each other. So I think in the most immediate sense, writing better notes, building relationships, having maybe a joint round now and then, and encouraging some person-to-person discussion around concerning or unexplained aspects of a case can prevent a lot of the drive to um, to defensively do unnecessary tests up front. Yeah, it's so great to hear you talk about uh, relationships because you know we're so much better when we're working together in a positive way. And a lot of the work that's being done on the mental health side at the system level is about the integration between physical health and behavioral health. So relationships with primary docs, uh, as that improves and as people have reliably good medical follow-up and medical investigations in the community, we're going to have less reliance on the emergency department to be the, the be-all and end-all uh, of the workups. Here, here. And Dr. Daw, As a psychiatrist, what's your expectation in terms of, for this patient, would you want lab tests done? Would you want a urine drug screen done? We start getting lab tests. I'd want to chase a hypothesis. And one of the things that's intriguing is the clozapine piece. We do know that clozapine can be fairly toxic on the white blood cell count, whether they've been off of it for as long as it's on. That's something to be thinking about in the presentation, how relevant it is for the acuity of the presentation, whether it has to be done right up front in the emergency department, that's the debatable point. And I think far too often you get these arbitrary, well, I'm not going to admit this person until blood tests gets done or until urine tox screen gets done. That's not reasonable. I think we need to be thinking about this has to be looked at over time 
in the presentation, but it shouldn't be the cost of a consultation. Let's talk a little bit more generally about the so-called routine screening tests. So there was the ASAP clinical policy on this issue that came out saying, quote, routine laboratory testing of all patients is a very low yield and need not be performed as part of the ED assessment. Now, on the other hand, many psychiatric facilities have varying requirements for baseline testing and interventions before accepting a patient for admission. You know, some will require a urine drug screen for everyone, and some will require so-called routine blood work for everyone. My understanding is that having a dual disorder, i.e. having a substance disorder and an underlying psychiatric disorder like depression or a psychotic disorder, that's a whole different kettle of a fish than just a psychiatric disorder by itself. And I understand that that's one of the reasons why the psychiatric team often wants a urine drug screen on these patients. How does a urine drug screen help you down the road? Like once the patient's admitted, you know, to me, I'm always personally, I'm happy to do a urine drug screen knowing that it's probably not going to help the emergency management of the patient, but just as a courtesy to the psychiatrist who wants to know if they're dealing with a dual disorder or not. Well, the co-occurrence of substance use in a mental health population is really high. But usually, much of that information can be gathered just by asking the person what they've taken, what's their usual pattern of taking. And my experience is that people are pretty honest about that stuff. Once you ask it in a reasonable fashion and in a humanistic fashion, not in an accusatory fashion, people will be pretty honest about that things. A lot of people on the mental health side actually aren't trained in the addiction side. So they're asking for tests without a tremendous amount of skill and expertise in what to do with those results or a strategic thought process in what they would do if they find that. On the other hand, there are cases, and certainly when I was at St. Mike's, we're doing this a lot, where we were de facto medically detoxing people from extraordinary high levels of alcohol, extraordinary combinations of substance use issues. And under those circumstances, again, when you're actually involved in a particular scenario, it's nice to know what you're dealing with so that you can chase it down and apply the right urgent-based treatments that may take place over the course of two or three days following that. So having a baseline of what the alcohol level is just helps you kind of map out where you're going to be in that detox process. So that said, there's tox screens and then there's tox screens. And I think if you're lucky to have any screening in your facility, it would be rudimentary serum tox screens. Maybe you're going to get a methanol ASA and uh, acetaminophen uh, and alcohol. Uh, urine tox screen, if gain, if you could get it in a timely way, probably has opiates, benzos, amphetamines and other things that will not impact THC. Thank you. That will not impact immediately or change your management immediately, but might be helpful down the road for whoever's going to manage the patient as an inpatient. And again, the, the alcohol level piece is sometimes controversial, figuring that out and whether it's useful or not, because the ability of a person to actually talk with you coherently is a much greater sensitive indicator of their uh, level of intoxication. The, the number is just a number. One of my more humbling cases in this area earlier in my career, 
points out the limitations of urine testing. I saw a gentleman who um, was acting strangely, new onset of behavioral disturbance, had tachycardia, which uh, I tried to explain. He flatly denied any ingestions, and I chased uh, various causes of tachycardia, including a urine tox screen, which was negative. And eventually, not knowing what else to do with him, I referred him on to psychiatry, and he revealed to the psychiatry resident that he had, in fact, taken an anticholinergic ingestion. And I'm very familiar with the toxidrome of anticholinergics, but there's an old saying that the eye can't see what the brain doesn't understand. And I had not consciously looked for anticholinergic toxidrome, and so I, I had missed some of the subtler signs. But the urine tox sure didn't save me. I wanted to get a little bit more into alcohol levels. Let's say our schizophrenic patient that hasn't been on their clozapine and won't talk to you is obviously intoxicated and he smells of alcohol and it turns out that you find out from collateral information that he was drinking lots of whiskey. Dr. Steinhardt, what about alcohol levels? How do they help us? How do they not help us? When is an alcohol level indicated? So you're talking to someone who's very familiar with alcohol and alcohol abuse and alcohol disease presentation, and this may vary amongst our listeners, but for me, there's nothing like the power of observation. So if someone comes in supposedly drunk, acting bizarre with normal vital signs and no other red flags, I'm very happy to observe this individual and no bloods, bedside glucose uh, assessment only. And we see how they go. And, you know, nine out of 10 times, at least, they sober up, they have normal mentation, no suicidality, and uh, off they go. An alcohol level of twice the legal limit in an alcoholic is someone who who's cerebrating and talking on a podcast show, whereas uh, that level in me, I'd be under the table semi-comatose because I'm almost a teetotaler. So the interpretation of that level is fraught with issues and concerns, and especially in, in a judicial, medical, legal circumstance, it's very hard to relate sobriety and slash inebriation to an absolute alcohol level. But I do at times do that if there are red flags, and if, certainly if the patient's deteriorating, then I'll jump at a level. Well, first of all, I never thought of Brian as a teetotaler. <laughs> it's just between yeah. you and me, Howard. You were at the birth of foam in Dublin in 2012, drinking Guinness along with Mike and, Duggan and the rest of the guys. And I still have a hangover thinking about it years later. <laughs> but I will say that uh, although I um, agree with everything that was said about alcohol levels, in terms of just poking them to get some blood sampling, I'd remind you that especially the chronic alcoholic or the alcohol withdrawal patient, there's often uh, not a clear boundary between them, is at high risk for metabolic abnormalities. And you should give careful consideration to doing some blood work, whether it's uh, hypomagnesemia or alcoholic ketoacidosis if they're vomiting, alcoholic hepatitis if they're having abdominal pain. But this is a group that has uh, uh, high risk for associated disorders. As we said before, that's thinking your way through the scenario and then targeting the investigations appropriately. Yeah, that's a, that's a good clarification. So what we're saying is that for the patient who comes in who's obviously intoxicated, 
but there's no other red flags for any other organic pathology that an alcohol level is not helpful because it's fraught with misinterpretation. If the patient is obviously inebriated, we know that already. We don't need an alcohol level to tell us that. However, delirium tremens, alcoholic ketoacidosis, there's Vomiting, a abdominal pain, pancreatitis. There's a whole long list of potential medical Seizures. complications that these patients are at high risk for. So even in those cases, an alcohol level might not be especially helpful, but it's something that we might want to consider. Okay. How about ECGs? So this patient's on clozapine. We know that clozapine prolongs the QTC, for example. The patient hasn't syncopized in front of us. You know, in that case, then we definitely want to get an ECG. Dr. Steinhardt, in general, when would you order an ECG for a schizophrenic patient who happens to be on a medication uh, like clozapine that can prolong the QTC? Dr. Ovens had mentioned an anticholinergic case that he missed. You know, sometimes you can get clues from the ECG that someone has an anticholinergic overdose. Dr. Steinhardt, when would you consider doing an ECG in a patient who presents with a psychiatric or behavioral emergency? So, so I think I'll get to that question, but I hearken back to, first of all, what Ian and Howard have already said, that the pharmacopoeia of uh, psychiatric patients is is like a whole subset of iatrogenic disease. And I haven't thought about this case in a long time, but I remember a young man presenting with his young wife with pre-syncope syncope and uh, kind of worked the patient up. He had been worked up by a neurologist and I found out later the results were negative, but was showing depressive symptoms and had just been put on an antidepressant. So I let the patient go. There's nothing to find. And about five minutes later, I hear Dr. Steinhardt stat to the waiting room. And the man had been waiting for his wife to collect him with a car and was pulseless, flat out, unconscious, pulseless on the, uh, on the floor. And we finally, you know, were able to get him onto, into a room and, and he was in torsad de plan, no doubt. Torsad de plan. And it's only as I was getting the paddles to him that he reverted to a sinus rhythm and one of the longest QT intervals I ever saw in my life. So yeah, this happens. Uh, there are many side effects to any drug. I don't know any class other than cardiac antiarrhythmics where there's such a potential for serious cardiotoxic side effects as the psychiatric drugs. And you're dealing with an elderly population who, by definition, are more prone to any side effect to any drug, as we alluded to. Suffice to say that any patient that's been started on a new antipsychotic or antidepressant that has the potential to cause dysrhythmias, is that the kind of patient that you do an ECG on? I wouldn't say universally that in such a situation I would always do an EKG. I would look at the patient if there are red flags, if they have presyncopal, syncopal complaints or chest pains, etc., that would lead me to even think of a cardiac origin of their complaints, then yes, I would do it. But I would otherwise not de facto do it. If my colleague from psychiatry says, hey, I'm admitting this patient, can one of your nurses at some point do an EKG just so we have it on the floor because they started a new drug? I'd say, yeah, sure, let's do it. I would add 
unless somebody else has requested it. If there's no history of syncope, regardless of the drug list, I usually would not request an EKG unless the heart rate was slow, fast, or irregular. But if they've got a you know a normal regular heartbeat, then I would not consider an EKG. But I want to emphasize chest pain. One of our recent legendary stories uh, that's quickly making the rounds in Toronto involves a patient who I can't describe because everybody would recognize him who's in the Toronto area. But the patient is very, very well known to all of us and always complains of chest pain in a very atypical manner. And on his 27th presentation, uh, his ECG showed a STEMI, an ST elevation MI, and he got an intervention. So, you know, having mental health problems is not protective of life's other travails. And just because the chest pain is unusual or been heard before, you should have a very low threshold for doing a cardiogram. We've talked a bit about which patients do require workups, and we've touched also on some of the risk factors for patients with organic disease. I just want to kind of drive home the key risk factors uh, and review them. So the high risk factors for organic disease are visual or tactile hallucinations as opposed to auditory, a sudden onset of symptoms as opposed to gradual over weeks and weeks, no personal or family history of a psychiatric diagnosis. So this is a brand new behavioral emergency and a history of substance abuse. Especially we have to be aware of the elderly and patients with multiple medical comorbidities. Specifically or especially immunodeficiency. Absolutely. Let's say the schizophrenic patient, we do obtain consent. We get some blood work And it turns out that his glucose is high enough that you're thinking it might be diabetes. But he never had a diagnosis of diabetes before. It's not high enough that you're worried that uh, he's in trouble medically right now. That's not an emergency, but it's within the range of this is undiagnosed diabetes. It has to be dealt with down the road somehow. Dr. Daw, these situations come up all the time. How do you deal with these situations? Whose responsibility is it? How do these patients get taken care of the best way they can? What I would expect is just some commentary on what should be done about it. It's nothing to worry about right now, but let's follow up down the line. And here's the person you should call on doing that. I would add, it's very helpful usually to add in those comments, is this a problem that needs to be addressed during the admission? Is this a problem that can wait till discharge, even if that's in a couple of weeks? And if so, could a primary care physician manage this or do they need a referral to some specialist? We'll not only show that you saw the abnormal result, but that you've given some thought to it and helped the uh, psychiatric service determine where the patient should go. Let's say in the best of all worlds, Dr. Evans, Dr. Daw, what solutions can you offer to help streamline the process of medical assessment of psychiatric patients in general? What do you see in the future for, in terms of process improvement for these patients? In the best of all possible worlds? The best of all possible worlds? Within (laughs) within reality. (laughs) In the best of all possible worlds, and I think in reality, where, where we're trying to get to is that 
an unplanned episode of care, a presentation to the emergency department, is actually a failure of care upstream. That so much of this stuff should be handled in with good protocols and ongoing treatment by committed, integrated teams that the emergency department stops becoming the front door uh, for entry point into the system. That's That used to be something that was um, fantasy. But now it's actually starting to become a little bit more reality. And we're starting to see places in the States, here in Canada, across uh, a lot of Europe and, and NHS, where they're really starting to operate that way, where the systems of integration are happening so that the amount of unplanned care in the mental health population is starting to crest and diminish. In inner city populations and first presentations and uh, a lot of other spots, there's still an overwhelming amount of the presentations. That's how we started this conversation today. And if you called up any family doctor in the city after hours, you're going to get a recording saying, go to the emergency department. We've conditioned our society to go to the emergency department as the, the place. And, and you guys do amazing work. You're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But I think what we're trying to build in the mental health system is other entry points that are reliable and available so that people don't have to go. So I just want to uh, review a few of the pitfalls that we've discussed on medical assessment of psychiatric patients. So some of the big pitfalls are doing an incomplete history, including a failure to obtain ancillary information, doing a cursory physical without full vitals, a mental status exam, brief neurologic exam, and assessment for toxidromes, premature closure of a psychiatric diagnosis, indiscriminate lab and imaging testing. These are just some of the pitfalls that we've discussed. Well, thank you so much, to, uh, Dr. Daw, Dr. Steinhardt, and Dr. Ovens. It was fantastic. I think our listeners will take away a lot from this, some good practical stuff about how to deal with these very challenging patients. Any last words of wisdom? May the force be with you. Drinks are on me. I like yours. (laughs) (laughs) Now, before we go, there's four courses coming up over the next year that you might be interested in. All of these courses will provide a chance for you to meet like-minded EM docs and learn a whole lot of career-enhancing stuff. First, if you have any interest in emergency administration at all, the EDAC conference in Toronto in November will feature some of the most influential leaders among EM admin leaders across Canada and the U.S., like Howard Ovens. The second day of the course will be dedicated to care of psychiatric patients. So go to the sidebar on the EM Cases website and click on the EDAC course banner to find out more details about the course and to register. Next is the second annual EM Cases course on February 4th, which sold out last year and is sure to be a huge success again. This year I'm psyched because we've got a great lineup. We've got Chris Hicks, we've got talks guru Margaret Thompson, Walter Himmel, PEDS master Anthony Crocco, Cassid Course Master Aaron Ciel, Ultrasound Guru Jordan Chenkin, and 
a few more amazing brains. Like last year, this will be a small group, interactive, roundtable discussion kind of thing with some of your favorite EM Cases guest experts on key topics like NOACs, trauma, talks, PEDS, and ortho. And I'm totally psyched to have Jordan Schenken and Chris Hicks run the ultimate cardiac arrest simulation session that'll help sharpen your resuscitation skills, integrating ultrasound and tidal CO2, chest compressions, monitoring, and all the latest in cardiac arrest resuscitation. The next course that I'll be speaking at, along with Joel Yaffe, Chris Hicks, Melanie Bamel, Dave Carr, and a long list of amazing speakers, is the University of Toronto's 30th Update and Emergency Medicine Conference in Whistler, and that's February 25th to March 1st. Basically, if you ski, you got to go to this conference. And last, but certainly not least, if you have any interest whatsoever in podcasting for medical education... A brand new conference run by Rob Rogers and Salim Rizé of the Teaching Institute, the first ever podcasting course for medical educators in Lexington, Kentucky in April, where you'll learn everything you need to know about how best to produce and disseminate podcasts for medical education. Now, I'll be the course director, and we've designed the course so that you'll be getting your hands dirty in small group workshops. And we've got an amazing lineup. We've got Scott Weingart. Anand Swami Nathan, Jess Mason of EM Rap, and Ken Milne, who will all be teaching at the course. Oh, and we're going to do a flip classroom kind of thing where the Teaching Institute will be releasing short podcasts for a few months before the course on key topics that we'll be covering at the course so that you'll be primed to absorb all the great stuff you'll be learning about podcasting at the course. To check out more about the podcasting course, go to thepodcastingcourse.com. So until next time, take it easy. Mm-hmm.